0: Hello and welcome to the Thinking Elixir Podcast. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, continuing from a previous discussion we had in episode 60 about speeding up compile times and the improvements made to the Mix XRef graph, there's a new poll request that was merged into Elixir Master from Jose Valim, which is described as extremely helpful if you are wondering why module A depends on module B. So the mix extraf graph will tell you there are dependencies between this module and that module. And this new work extends that a little further to say, explain what the dependency is to make it easier to fix.
1: It looks like it gives you like a command to just run a trace on a specific
2: file. So that's helpful. Yeah. Decrease the output a little. Speaking of compile speed, another fix came in for dealing with recompilations when config or mix.lock file changes. Yeah, every time I change a config, the entire project recompiles. And if you've got a large project, you know that can take a while. So, looks like they're optimizing that. So, the the fix, which is to recompile only necessary dependencies whenever the config or lock uh, changes. This was merged, by the way, so it should it is in Elixir Master. Don't know when it'll be released, but it's in there now. The specific changes that'll trigger recompilation now is when an app is removed from the lock file, so that still happens. When you change the configuration for your own app in config slash uh, config dot exs, so the, the main one, so it affects all environments. Or when you change the Elixir C, the Elixir C compiler options or paths, right? So now it has to go look for more stuff, which can drastically change how things compile. Uh, So those are the big three things after this pull request, right? At post optimization, those are still the the three things that can trigger a a whole project recompile. IX and Livebook
1: got improved IntelliSense or code completion for structs and sigils. What I think is funny is jose commits to elixir master and then one day later livebook has support for it already so (laughs) it's almost like they work at the same place so this means that you could you know in iex or in livebook you could type the percent character and then it could give you a list of struct names that are available to you you can also use the sigil command like the little tilde character and get completion for the sigil options that you have available And additionally, in Livebook, you could just hover over a struct or a sigil and get access to the documentation. So that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, we've got some links in the show notes to the pull request, which has some videos and photos attached to kind of give you a better idea of what it's actually doing and what it looks like. In a broader community news around libraries, PromX and Wallaby are now being sponsored by SmartLogic. And Chris Keithley is also being sponsored by them too, because he has quite a number of libraries that he is the maintainer of. So this is just an interesting thing to see. It's great when you have corporate sponsorship saying, we want to support the libraries that we depend on to ensure that they are being able to go forward and to continue. So if you're looking to encourage your company, your employer to sponsor libraries and things that your project and your team depends on, then you can run mix hex.sponsor to see the libraries that you are depending on and be able to try and fund those just to help make sure they're staying well-funded and and sticking around. Love it when I see a,
2: a company like that do that.
1: Next up, Lucas Larson, who works on the Erling OTP team and helped bring the OTP JIT feature to the community recently, wrote a blog post about using ETS tables for distributed counters. This follows on with a previous discussion we've had about tracking user count for large events. Was that something you were involved with, Cade? Yeah, yep, yep. (laughs) I did see his blog post and I was like, huh, this sounds very familiar. (laughs) Uh, So many things to go back and do and rewrite. Uh, Looks like a good resource for understanding ETS tables, for counters
2: with performance graphs and comparisons. So interesting read for sure. Yeah. All right, last item. Uh, in other Erlang news, starting in OTP 24.1, uh, we're going to get better float to string support. I think we've actually talked about this a while back ago. So it was a large PR. It's vendoring a, a common algorithm that's in some other libraries now. So that's now in OTP. And uh, it looks like it speeds up the process of turning a float you know, the numerical representation of it into a string about four to five times. And you can imagine like that's the, that's low level things that's happening a lot more than you might realize. So that could actually be a substantial performance increase depending on what you're doing. For example, converting to JSON or logging. I mean, it happens all the time. You just don't think about it. Anyway, we have uh, the, the PR uh, links and the Twitter announcement. Really interesting stuff. Um, and the algorithm is called ReU if that sounds familiar it's because you like me are both uh snes and street fighter players, and they're they're fast fighters right so uh i don't know i just totally made that up but that's that's fun fun enough for me and that's it for the news today our very special guest is chris mccord chris welcome to the
0: show hello thanks for having me so chris this is an awesome time to have you here there's a lot of big stuff we have to cover One is you announced that you took a new job and leaving Dockyard, a long time stint there. And you'd went to this new company that I don't know how many people even heard of, fly.io, where I happen to work. So yay, hey, welcome, coworker.
3: Yeah, it's um it's awesome
0: to yeah, connect
3: with you, Mark, as a coworker, because I've been on the show prior, but in slightly different context.
0: Yes, yes. And then then there's also the news we have to cover, which is the exciting release of Phoenix 1.6. So I'm really excited to get into all of this stuff. But maybe first you can just kind of give a little bit of background about yourself, because we have people all the time who are coming new to Elixir and they don't necessarily know who everybody is. So can you give yourself just a little bit of an intro?
3: Sure. Yeah, I'm Chris McCord. I created the Phoenix Framework and that was in 2013, I think. So it's grown in some ways since then. For a number of years, I was working at Dockyard doing basically nearly full-time Phoenix and related project development. Uh, So along the way, we released a few things uh, like Phoenix Presence, Phoenix Channels, and Phoenix Live View. And we are on a 1.6
0: release uh, as of today. So it's been a wild ride, but that's kind of my spiel. Awesome. I'm super excited about 1.6 because there's a lot of interesting and fun things that we've been looking forward to coming out in this release. We've talked about a lot of it on the news segment of the show. But first, I think we need to cover this change that you made in your employment because Dockyard has been funding your time to work on Phoenix. And that, I think, can, you know, concern people. It's like, oh, no, what does this mean for Phoenix? Because you've been spending, I don't know, was it like 80% of your time kind of dedicated towards shepherding the Phoenix project? Maybe you can talk a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, it was uh, 75%, but it's neither here nor there. So first off with this move, I mean, I I have nothing but good things to say about Docker. Uh, They supported my work, had a great experience there. Great people are there. And uh, I am remaining involved in an advisory capacity for Dockyard. So we kind of talk about what that means as well. But this transition, yeah, I've been at Dockyard for six years, uh, which is like an eternity in the tech world. So I don't like to move around a lot. I wasn't really looking to make a move, actually, um, until I found this company named Fly.io that (laughs) turns out (laughs) built this perfect platform kind of in a vacuum from at least what I was aware of, uh, what Fly had been working on, I think, for the last four years or so. Uh, so it kind of just, uh, our paths kind of crossed IO and, and myself. It actually started with uh, Kurt, the, the CEO, had reached out to me. Now, actually, it started with, I was thinking about this uh, yesterday. It started with uh, Jose was like, hey, can you hop on a call? Um, I was like, oh, sure. So Jose and the Fly CEO, Kurt, were just going to chat about how Fly could better support Elixir, um, kind of bring Elixir into the fold just kind of like, you know, an impromptu, an informal chat. And Jose is like, oh, we should get Chris in on this. So I was thinking yesterday that like all uh, great career things that happened to me in my life ha- are like directly related to Jose, <laughs> 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 which is bizarre. So I was connected with Fly through Jose. We just had an informal conversation with uh, with Kurt about like, hey, it seems like Fly built this perfect platform and uh, Fly had really just discovered Elixir and realize that they built this perfect thing for the ecosystem. So we just had a conversation about um, kind of what Fly is all about, how the two can play nice together. And anyway, long story short, Kurt reached out to me again and asked, like, hey, we're going to hire an Elixir developer advocate. And that's where uh, Mark came in. But kind of like we stayed in touch. And then it was like, hey, what if we hired you as well? So um, that's kind of how how it happened. So I was in a really good spot at Dockyard. But I think the, the Fly... Platform And what it has to offer is just too good of like, you know, the joke is like there's so much synergy there between (laughs) uh, between Phoenix and what Fly is doing. So we can kind of dive into, I think, why that is. But that's kind of how how the stars came to align with uh, kind of Fly built this thing in a vacuum as as far as what distributed applications meant for what we're doing in Elixir. And then we were meanwhile building all these distributed things uh, with Phoenix presence and LiveView. And then we found each other. A few years later, and it was like, oh, my gosh, this is perfect.
1: So what does this mean for your open source development time?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, with managing this announcement, it was tricky because, like, you know, I did it on Twitter. So it's like, what can I pack into 250 characters? So my goal was one, like, you know, I opened with like the continued development of Phoenix. So I'm going to have as much actually a little bit more time um, open source wise but essentially, the open source side of things isn't going to change. Uh, I should have a little bit more bandwidth, but really, it's same deal as Dockyard. And um, that's why I wanted to stress like the continued development of the framework uh, isn't going to be kind of steered in any particular way, just because what we're like whatever we're, we're working on on Phoenix like directly is relevant to what Fly is doing. So it's like whether we're making Live View, which works on these like can work great for running on the edge close to users or Phoenix presence or Phoenix pub sub it just like whatever I think that we're going to be focusing on the framework is going to be directly relevant to making it work better on fly. Um, so there's that side of things. And then it it was important for me to try to also educate people that are unaware of fly, like what fly is all about. And also tell people that like, you know, my move from dockyard isn't, wasn't kind of uh, happened by some event that caused me to leave. It was just fly was kind of this perfect matchup. So I'm still staying on at Dockyard in in an advisory capacity. So I'll still basically be available to our Elixir team at Dockyard to bounce questions off me, have a heads up on new releases or what's coming down the pipeline. Nothing's really going to change on the Phoenix side other than I'm hopeful that we'll be able to really leverage kind of the distributed features of Phoenix uh, and put them out to the broader world.
0: That's great. I think you kind of answered the question there about what that means as an advisory role. So that was really good to hear. And just kind of that, because I know Dockyard continues to support a number of other developers who work on Phoenix, so that, that there's still going to be a lot of that close collaboration. Maybe putting words into your mouth, but it sounds like there's not going to really be any impediment to the the continued interaction between the whole team and, and everything going forward, right?
3: Yeah, exactly. So I mean, like Doctored also is sponsoring the Lumen Project, which is a alternative Erlang Beam VM uh, in Wasm. So they've been really heavily involved in the community. I mean, they're they've invested millions of dollars at this point uh, over the years. They've sponsored essentially every Elixir conference as like the top sponsor. So they have been involved and they're going to remain heavily involved.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. I love I love how involved Dockyard is. I wish more companies were likened to Dockyard, I guess you could say. It's got to be fun to be able to work on all this tooling that benefits the community. I love how many things are being worked on at Dockyard. And honestly, for like years, I've always been like, one day I want to go work at Dockyard. I don't know if I ever will, but just like their involvement in the community, I feel like probably gives them a leg up on attracting good talent and people who would also want to be willing to contribute and help out in the community.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that's where like, you know, people, like if you use Dockyard as the frame of reference, like I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but there is a certain, um, the the Brexit episode, right. With, with the Kotlin move. (laughs) I don't even want to discuss that, but this is all to say that, you know, Dockyard is less than a hundred person company, And you know the amount of resources and time that they put into R and D into the community is staggering compared to all these other companies that are multi-million billion dollar valuations that uh, really aren't giving back at all. So it's just worth putting that into context on like just how much uh, Docker has invested in the community given the size of the company.
1: Where does that come from? Like why? Because it's it's almost like you're giving money away for free. Like you're investing in this open source stuff that maybe doesn't directly benefit you. But then these other businesses, they're like, no, like we would never pay our developers to spend 75% of their time working on these indirect benefits. Like, how does that work? Why is Dockyard so different?
3: Yes, I think, you know, we can credit that to Brian Cartarella is the Dockyard owner. Uh, He's always been uh, heavily involved in open source and kind of R&D initiatives. Um, He stepped down as CEO, and he's uh, now like the head of R&D. So that's his focus and remains his focus. Um, So I'll say like, you know, it's really because of him and and the culture around R&D that he's built. I mean, at the end of the day, it has to make sense uh, value-wise, right? Like the company has to be profitable and be able to support these things. But, you know, the idea is you're able to invest in this technology, makes it better, it attracts talent, it attracts clients because they know that the best people are working on it. And it kind of is like this self-feedback loop. Uh, So why that isn't directly used by other companies is uh, you know I, I don't know capitalism <laughs> like you know as far as like billion dollar companies i think once honestly i think once a company reaches a big enough size just the bureaucracy in place makes it difficult to i think retain these kinds of r&d relationships because i think you know if you're if you're at a certain size you know unless your manager that's vouching for let's say a uh, 50% open source initiative or whatever that starts to look a little bit weird on the balance sheet to someone higher up. And, you know, so talking with other people in the open source community, you know, what often happens if you can find a bigger company that kind of sponsors this kind of work, you can have this happy path for a while, but then your manager leaves. And now it's like that one person that kind of was like, no, leave this person alone. They're valuable to us. They're worth their weight in gold. No. Once that person leaves or is gets promoted, now suddenly you're a target for the balance sheet. Like, wait a second. We just have, yeah. So I think... There's some, yeah, there's some weird um, incentives there, some broader, I don't know, capitalism things that for some reason um, don't don't work out. Because I think, you know, companies are kind of just taking all this free work that the open source maintainers are doing and making money off of it, which, you know, at the same time, we're, we're doing the work for free. No one's forcing us to, but it, I, I do wish that there was more involvement from other companies in general, not just in Elixir, but just in general, you know, picking up all this open source software.
0: So I'd then like to turn back to something you said where you're talking about Fly and it being a really good union or mashup or something that works really well at Phoenix. Because I know when I first got interested in, in coming to Fly myself, I was super interested because of their network and the way just the infrastructure, right? The way it lets me create live view apps globally distributed, but still clustered through Elixir. And like the clustering is like super easy cross region clustering, right, which I have never been able to figure out on AWS or anything else. It's just I'm sure there's a way to do it. I have no idea how. So with my operational skills, which are not zero, right, I, I can do some decent stuff, right. But then like, you know, being able to just do this naturally and have it work. And I was like, man, this is exciting. It's like, a platform that was built for Elixir when they didn't even know about Elixir at the time. And then they've, they've since learned about Elixir and they're like, Hey, this is a really good fit. And now, you know, I've been working on doing some Phoenix projects within the company, right? Like they're getting excited about it. So I'm just curious about yourself. Like, what do you see with how Phoenix and Fly work well? And why is that a good fit?
3: Yeah. So Mark, I think you, you summed it up pretty well, but uh, so I may repeat some things, but I think, The way that you came in to the company and were excited is kind of what the same reasons that brought me in. But I think in general, uh, multi-region has been uh, an impossible task, at least for me, kind of like, like, you know, I'm not a DevOps person, but anytime we had a client at Dockyard that was interested in multi-region, we essentially dissuaded them from that unless they absolutely required it, just because it takes an army of engineers to, to do that kind of thing. And I think most platforms outside of Elixir, like you can go multi-region, companies do it. But then like, how do you get those apps to talk to each other? Do you do RPC? Like there are all these other considerations. So in general, the vast majority of companies just don't deploy multi-region. And when it comes to Elixir, it's like anytime you would think about like, oh, we can actually talk to servers easily. But then once you go multi-region, you have to worry about security and the distributed Erlang side of things is secure it can be made to be secure but it's tricky to get that right so it's like once you go multi-region you have to be very careful and um, almost no one is doing that because no platforms like aws or anyone really support this kind of thing connecting multi-region and doing it trivially so i've basically been like man it would be amazing to do global distributed applications but that's too hard for me to solve and then Fly came along, solved that from the network side of things. And it just so happened to work out perfectly with what we're doing in Phoenix. Because like, yes, we have Phoenix PubSub, so we have Phoenix Presence. Now your apps can run globally and talk to each other. But now we, we've also been focusing on Phoenix Live View. One of the big caveats was like, if, you're, if you have high latency clients, it's a bad fit. And then anyone in, let's say, Australia would say like, oh, this is this uh, user experience. Anytime I use a Live View app is bad uh, Flycam comes in and just solves that problem because now we can literally run these live view processes close to the user, kind of like, you know, like Xbox live, uh, online gaming, where you want to run the game servers as close as possible to the people playing the game. Like this is how you can kind of think about live view running. It's like, well, we'll just run it by the user and everyone's going to have a super fast experience as far as interacting uh, with the UI. So it kind of solves the latency problem. Um, perfectly solves the uh, security problem and it just works and it works in a way that it's like this is a long answer but this is like my mindset for getting excited about fly it's like they're deploying uh, containers out there but it's not like um, as far as like vendor lock in is concerned it's like it's your standard quote-unquote standard deploy experience except the apps are just connected globally where you want them to be Uh, So it's not like you're giving up, like, let's say AWS Lambda or all these other CDN-like services. Uh, Cloudflare have, like, Edge workers where, like, oh, you can run JavaScript or WASM, and some people are doing things on the Edge. Fly is like, no, we can just run whatever you want. Uh, So that's why it kind of works perfectly for us, um, just deploying the application out to Tokyo or Australia, East Coast, West Coast of the U.S., and they're all clustered together. And it just works because... Erling is distributed and Phoenix PubSub is distributed. So it's super exciting. And I think that it unlocks this vast potential for us to do things that other communities just can't do or can't do easily. Like imagine, like you said, as one developer, you're like, oh, yeah, my app's deployed in Tokyo, Sydney, uh, U.S. East Coast, West Coast. And yeah, when you type a message over here, it just shows up to all the servers over there. Like, what would that take if you were saying that, you know, to someone not in the Elixir ecosystem? Like, that sounds like a months and months or years of work. And for us, it's like, yeah, the Phoenix generators deployed on fly with some PubSub, a couple lines of PubSub. And now you have messages showing up across the planet. Uh, so anyway, that's why I'm very excited about it. Um, and I think we're going to be able to build things that other people are going to look at and be like, what? Like, <laughs> how is this happening? And for us, it's like, yeah, this is just how we build applications. Uh, so that, there's my really long spiel. I'm very excited about, about what we can build.
0: It sounds awesome because I I share all the same views. I'm really excited to see kind of what you're going to do with this as you start to make that part of it your focus as well. Because I, I know Kurt has been really excited about some of these features. And he's like, hey, Mark, can you build this? And I'm like, I think I can. You know, and then like with Chris coming on, it's like, oh, yeah, boom, we can do this. Yeah, we can do this. So I'm excited because like some of it is having some like plug features that are just off the shelf things to help take a... Standard Phoenix app that really wasn't built for multi-region at all from the beginning and just make it be able to work. Just like getting that off the shelf, easy solution. So there's going to be lots of interesting stuff. I'm really excited to see what you have in mind for some of that. I know some of the things that I did when I came on was starting to build out some of the guides, like how do I get Elixir up and running? And one of the things I thought was super exciting was the ability to get SSH. I can just using WireGuard, which is the, just an existing awesome technology that's part of how the, the, the virtual private networks work within Fly, I can connect my local machine up to that virtual private network. And one of the fun things I did is I got Livebook running. So I'm running Livebook locally on my machine, connecting it up to my cluster and able to run queries and things. And then me able to just SSH into a running server without doing the WireGuard, you know, just doing the the fly CTL to a command line interface, just doing that to get a shell open in IEX running. Super exciting stuff. I don't know, like, what is it that you think, Chris, is interesting or or different in in any of this?
3: Yeah, so I mean, Mark, you, you blew my mind with that post, because looking at fly from the outside, you know, I was thinking about the deployments, everything I just talked about, But then reading the live post, the first question in my head was like, wait a second, how is it going to be secure from, you know, your home to the cluster? And then it was like the post is it calls it out right away that like, oh, we can just open a wire guard tunnel. So I think that Fly's networking layer like is like really what makes it special and like the secret sauce. So it's like I can connect these servers globally, securely, and then like join the cluster from home on my laptop securely. And like that just works like that used to be like a nefarious, like I used to do that from like my little DigitalOcean droplet, I would cluster it from my laptop and it'd be like, yeah, this is probably being sent in the clear. <laughs> so there's some really neat things there. Um, I love when you can just remove layers of abstraction. That's what LiveView is all about, really. It's like HTTP falls away. You don't have like JSON payload structures Uh, So one thing Fly does, one thing I've ignored in my career mostly is like CDNs for assets. It's like it's always been someone else's problem, like, oh, we'll let the ops people figure that out. So Fly makes sense because for the same reason you deploy your JS and CSS close to users, right? Like CDNs for assets make total sense because it's a better user experience. So why don't, why not just run your apps close to users? It's kind of like the fly idea, which makes complete sense. But one thing that's amazing is like the CDN part of the asset story. If you're using Phoenix, like that's just goes away because like your, your plug static plug is your CDN. Then like, if you're already running close to the user plug that static is the CDN. Like, so you just remove this ops layer entirely like, Oh, we're no longer having to pay the CDN or like copy assets over to a CDN bust that cash. Like that's, that's just gone. So I love like just removing those layers. So that's one. I also wanted to touch on, my focus has always been around distributed applications like Phoenix Presence, Phoenix PubSub. But I think I will be able to revisit that with kind of a renewed focus because like this idea of like distributed applications, now that we have a platform that lets us kind of trivially do this is now like, what does it look like to build apps this way? Kind of what you touched on, Mark. Like you can use Phoenix PubSub it would just work but if you're if you've got like Postgres uh, read replicas out in Tokyo and you're writing back to your primary database like these things have to be solved and and thought about so while some things will just work when you're building applications this way like there are some things necessarily that you're going to have to think about Um, but as much as you can pretend that you have this non-distributed system uh, the better so I do think we will kind of think about these problems or we as like the Phoenix team in a broader light, because now we have a platform that we can start kind of exercising these things. Uh, so one example, like you know, Fly has this idea that you touched on, Mark, about like rerouting back uh, the HTTP requests back to the primary. But I think in the context of like a live View application, what we can do instead of like, instead of resending the request back and routing it back to the primary, we could just run that code the whole block of code that you want to run on the primary server. It's essentially like an RPC <laughs> call, but for us, like it's very easy to do. Like it sounds, it sounds weird, but it's like, yeah, it's just like run this function, but like over there and like, and it can just do that. So for the listeners, like there's a lot of context here. Let's say one of the bigger problems of a distributed system is like reading your own rights. So imagine someone posts a chat message and we broadcast over Phoenix pub sub, Hey, this new message exists that all works. You write the Postgres, but if you've got like a Postgres read replica in Tokyo, your PubSub message may arrive first before that data has been replicated to your read replica. So if you need to like hydrate that message uh, when it arrives on the other side, that data may not be there yet. So like you have this race condition, which can be solved in a number of ways. There'll be a great future episode. We can talk about this, but this is kind of where I think a lot of the content and ideas and solutions around where I'll spend my open source and non open source time flies around these ideas. But what they're doing on like rails is like, well, just don't do any work that requires the primary on the other servers reroute that request. Because the problem you'll have is like, let's say you can do database queries just fine. Anyone can do a database query back across the ocean. But if you needed to like, let's say do three reads before you do a write against the primary replica, like that's like many seconds of latency. It's like you're going from Tokyo back to the the database query and back, back to the primary and back. And then you got the data you need to do the write and you go back across the ocean. Like that's not, that's not what you want to do. So what we can do though, is we can just say like whatever code that we want to run, that's going to do a few reads and then do a write in a transaction. Like just take that code and go run it over on the primary and give us the response. So we can do one hop across the ocean and back instead of rewriting the whole web request. So it's like, just do this RPC over there and then we get back the Elixir result with essentially the same code that we're running. Uh, So I think that we have some unique opportunities, again, because the Elixir and Beam platform is kind of built for this kind of thing. So whereas other ecosystems, I think, can still take wild advantage of what Fly is doing, they're still not gonna be able to just be like, oh yeah, run this code, but over there and give me the result. Like for us, that's just built into the platform. So there's some really neat things we can do so, like, you still have to think about this global distributed system. You can't just pretend it doesn't exist. But I think we have all the tools to actually make this work really well. And that's what most excites me.
0: Wow. Well, we will definitely have to sync up because I'm going to be giving an Elixir conference talk about doing this kind of distributed Phoenix applications. And I've already been working on some things and building out some uh, samples for that. But like, what you're talking about there is like, oh, that's a whole nother level. Yep. We're gonna, totally going to have to work together on that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, while we've got you here, I'd love to shift over and talk about the Phoenix 1.6 release. This is a big release, right? Because it involves the new Heeks templates and a change to the component model for working with Phoenix components. I know with some of that, with like the Live View release that kind of came out around the same time, a little earlier. There were some breaking changes with that. Maybe you can just kind of give an overview of what all is encompassing in this 1.6 release.
3: My View 0.16 came out like kind of like a silent release. I didn't publicize it because I thought that I was going to get Phoenix out like the next week. Uh, But it's been a couple weeks uh, after that. Finally, I had the time to get it done. But yeah, Phoenix 1.6... And view, the Live view release kind of are like hand in hand. We've been working behind the scenes um, heavily on like the LiveView Heeks engine that you mentioned. Uh, I can really credit Marlis uh, for all that work. Marlis is the author of Surface, which is like a layer that builds on top of LiveView. So we saw kind of all the great work he's doing. And we were like, we really would like some of these ideas, like being able to parse the HTML and kind of have this uh, syntactic convenience and know if your HTML is invalid. So I think there's some really great ideas there. And kind of the first thing that we brought over was this HTML aware component template engine. Um, so what it allows you to do is kind of a React style like HTML tags and that HTML tag can set Elixir uh, expressions in your attributes and those kind of be your assigned. So it's really like a convenience around calling what you used to call as live component, but in a much more readable way because the goal is like you're building this markup. And if you really componentize your live view applications prior to this, you kind of lose this idea. Like you you don't really know what the markup structure looks like. Like once you read all the components, it kind of is lost in what you're building. So that's what we we brought over from Surface thus far. And it has this idea of function components. So you can essentially invoke a local function as an HTML tag with this tag-like syntax and then have it produce a a component uh, instead of calling live component everywhere. So that's kind of, One of the big things that came over, meanwhile, on the Phoenix side, it was kind of a back and forth to figure out how this worked with Phoenix because the goal was, you know, we had HTML EEX and then we had HTML L-E-E-X and we were like, okay, it was like, if you're building LiveView, you can use the leaks. Uh, If you're doing regular Phoenix, you can use EEX. Our goal with this release is anything that wants to render HTML can just standardize on heeks templates because like there's still a lot of value in getting valid semantically correct HTML verified at compile time. So what we did with Phoenix, like there was some changes to Phoenix HTML to be aware of this. But this is all to say like everything is heeks now going forward. EEX and L-E-E-X are deprecated, will still work. But everything is standardized on this new component primitive that can render heeks templates. So even if you're not using LiveView, you could still render a component in a quote unquote dead view and it will produce HTML. So this is something people have asked for specifically on like, Hey, we really love the component model, but if we're not using live view or we're sharing between non live view and live view templates, uh, now that just works. But trying to mangle the dependencies and figure out how all this works was a challenge. So if I don't mention this, people probably won't notice, but spoiler alert, um, new Phoenix one six applications will depend on Phoenix live view because the LiveView Heeks engine lives in LiveView. And it's not easy to extract that. Anyway, we, we thought a lot about like, can we move the engine out of LiveView and have you not depend on LiveView? And it's very non-trivial. And it's like, if you want to use Heeks, you get to depend on Phoenix LiveView. And most applications that are using Phoenix new Task that are using the Phoenix Live dashboard already depend on LiveView anyway. So it's like, before people freak out and they're like, oh, yet another dependency. It's like Phoenix Nude by default in Phoenix 1.5 included Phoenix Live Dashboard, which, surprise, depends on Phoenix Live View. So I think most people anyway um, had started from Phoenix 1.5 or depending on Phoenix Live View uh, transitively anyway, even if not using Live View. So Heeks, if you want to use it, is going to be a Live View dependency, even if you don't want to start a process on the server. But honestly, there's not that much code in Live View outside of, Like it's a really quite small project. So that was the the big bulk of the work on the template change side. Uh, So there will be a deprecation on Sigil L, the leaks templates, but it's like for the foreseeable future, at least for a good chunk of time, it's going to remain working, but you'll want to transition. It's just a little bit more strict going from leaks to heaks because, um, you can't do, since we have to parse HTML, uh, you can't do arbitrary EX expressions inside like an opening and closing tag anymore. So those likely a little bit would work depending on what people are doing to migrate, but it shouldn't be too difficult. It's just like, we have to be able to know that like, with EX, you could just inject anything you wanted. So like, I don't know why you would, but you could like in the middle of a tag, like close the tag within an EX expression and then continue. So like we can't, since we're parsing HTML, we require to, to use like the React style um, braces for attribute values. So it shouldn't be a hard migration, but there are some considerations there. So that's the big changes on the HTML templating side. I think I'd like to say we're laying the foundation for, I think, broader work going forward. Like my, my big goal for LiveView and this component model is having off-the-shelf components that the community puts out. So I think having like this HTML syntax was step one. I want to take this idea that surface has around slots. Other frameworks use the slot idea where you're like, I want to name this block of stuff in this component. Let's say you're, it's your navigation. You want to say like, this is the user profile block. And then the caller can say like, I want to shove whatever content here that I, I want versus like just being able to shove. It's easy to shove like a variable, like, hey, the title should be this. But if you're like, no, I want like the whole HTML block to be whatever I want. That's kind of this idea of slots. So I'm going to slot in some content. Uh, we don't have that yet, but there is a issue on LiveView for the Heeks roadmap that kind of specifies kind of where we want to go with this. And I think the, that slots will really get us close to this idea of like reusable components that the community can put out and say like, hey, if you want a modal or, you know, what have you, here's the, the code to do it that you can drop in your project. Now, so I'm excited to see kind of where that goes in the future. We're not there yet. And I think Marlis has kind of um, spearheaded a ton of this work and ideas. So with Surface, he has this, uh, he does compile time checks, uh, which are huge. So we're exploring that um, as well. You know, that compile time, it would be nice to know if you're passing an assign that doesn't exist on the component, it would be nice to find that out at compile time versus runtime. Um, so we we have to verify, like, i this is like a brain dump, so feel <laughs> free to interject, but I just did like uh, the announcement write-up, so it's like all fresh in my head. But one of the big pushes for the Elixir core team is around optimizing compile times. This feature in Surface is amazing, but one thing that we've done in the Phoenix 1.6 release is remove as much compile time, Elixir compile time dependencies as we could to make sure that when you change something in your controller, we don't have to recompile the whole project, so to speak. So one of the things that we want to explore with this idea in Surface, which we love, is does it scale well for like really big projects? So, you know, if you're doing compile time checks across components and you're rendering a tree of components you're, at compile time, you have to go like, you know, everything is, starts to depend on a lot of other things, um, Elixir compiler wise. So we have to kind of really explore what that looks like at the optimization level, but it's definitely something on our radar because it's a quality of life improvement that everyone wants. Like they use Surface and they're like, oh, this is incredible. Like, I, I didn't pass this property and the compiler told me about it. Like, you want to know that at compile time. Also, what Surface has done is like this idea of a Surface catalog where, like, since it knows about all your components, it gives you like a pretty rendered page of like, here are all your components in your app. Here's what they can do. Here's the a science that you can pass to them, which I think is just amazing. It's like someone coming into the project can just have at a glance, hey, what components are here? So I think I would love to explore more of that kind of thing that Marlis has done, but he's really done an incredible job over there at the Surface Project. So that's kind of where my focus would be on the live use side. And then on the Phoenix side, the big things that we haven't talked about yet on this show is the authentication generators that uh, Aaron Renner and uh, Jose had worked on that give you bootstrapped full authentication out of the box. We just generate some code in your application. You can extend it. We don't own everything we didn't write like the device for elixir Uh, jose wrote a great blog post which we can plug at the end of this but there are a lot of considerations went into the approach there but at the end of the day you can run mix phoenix gen off and you've got user login uh, email registration forgot password everything that you would expect which i know people have asked for for years and years now and we've said that we've not wanted to own so this is a happy compromise where Yes, we owned the generator, but we're not generating uh, or we're not, you're not depending on a library that the Phoenix team wrote. We wrote a security audited authentication solution. So you know that you're starting from a good standpoint. It's well tested out of the box. And then if you need to extend it, you can extend
0: it from there. You mentioned the auth generators there. And I really... Love those. So I've been using those as a separate library. Are you saying that that's going to be brought in officially as part of Phoenix 1.6?
3: Yeah, exactly. So mix Phoenix phoenixgen.auth would just be built in. Very cool. Aaron Render did that work. So you were probably using Aaron's Phoenix Off package. Yes. So yeah, Jose did the initial implementation. Aaron turned that into a task uh, and did a bunch of work around integration testing, which actually just caught of... I was changing the Heeks templates yesterday and we caught a bug with Aaron's work. So the Phoenix test suite will actually run the generators in a new project and then like compile that project behind the scenes and make sure it compiles. So anyway, Aaron did a ton of really, really great work around that. But yeah, that's built into Phoenix now
0: as a Phoenix 1.6. So it feels like in some ways that Phoenix 1.6 is growing. I think that's a good model. Like I think it kind of follows along with what Jose has been encouraging with like the core is good. A lot of stuff should happen outside the core, but it sounds like maybe some of these things as they solidify and they they're like yeah there's a lot of value here we can make that part of the core and it can kind of explore outside you know like surface has, has been a great example of that too and then kind of bringing pieces in so phoenix is growing but it's already it's bringing in something that's already been mature and tested is that kind of fair
3: yeah that's a fair assessment and like it's not like you know everyone out of the box if they don't run the authentication generator they don't depend on any of that code so it's like it, it does it is more code living in, uh, in core, but it's not like we have devise from Rails living inside the Phoenix core code base. So I think, yeah, that, that model is accurate. Uh, one thing that we also did in the other direction was we extracted Phoenix View and do its own project. So the upgrade path will be adding the Phoenix View mixed dependency to uh, your project because what people were wanting to do is like outside of the web application, let's say in your umbrella app has no no idea about a phoenix web server they wanted to render an email phoenix view is great for rendering templates but you would have to depend on an entire web server framework to render an email to send someone you know a payment notification so we extracted uh gary Randy on the phoenix team extracted phoenix view from phoenix core because it made total sense it's like yeah you want to use all this template rendering but you don't want to depend on a web server so that actually has been moved out. So I think a couple lessons is like, you don't want to extract things too early, but yeah, you also don't want to just like put the entire kitchen sink under, under the core framework. So I think we've done a a good job in that regard. So the things that we're adding now mostly are uh, external dependencies that are just included by default. And then people still get up in arms about this, but it's like, it's not in the core code base. So Phoenix live view is going to be dependent on by default. Now you can remove it or pass the appropriate flag. We're also including uh, Swoosh by default. Swoosh is a mailer library. So we have a Phoenix Gen mailer task that generates a mailer for you now. Because one of the few things, like we like to say we we tackle like the 80% use case that everyone needs in their web application. So one of the things over the years is we've avoided email. And it's like, eventually you've got to send email, right? It's like, (laughs) forgot password requires an email. So we finally were like, everyone everyone, as far as like the 80% of developers needs to be able to send email. So out of the box, we didn't like add swoosh to the Phoenix core code base, but you depend on it in the mix files unless you pass no mailer. Uh, So we have a new mailer task and swoosh will be a default dependency out of the box. So the, the idea is like not to include everything under the sun, but it's like, this is something just over the years that everyone has needed and we've kind of just punted on it. And finally it's like, okay, we need to have a mailer solution that isn't I mean, the community has had one, but like, we can't just continue to be like, oh yeah, we generate authentication and forgot password emails, but the forgot password is like an IO put on your terminal. (laughs) It's like, no, it needs to be, it needs to send an email. So finally, yeah, it's like, we, we, we solve that.
1: This is all very exciting stuff. I think that actually you guys are secretly adding live view in to get that to be a little more widely adopted is that's kind of what (laughs) I understood from that.
3: That's fair. I mean, I think that's where, that's where my focus is. You know, I've joked that like dead are dead to me already. So I think it's clear that like, it's, that is where my focus is. Like, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's not a surprise to anyone. Like I've said that anything Greenfield that renders HTML from the server should be a live view. Like that's my stance on it. Uh, So I think part of it, like this wasn't really a way to backdoor live view in like Jose and I had, and I forget the nuance of the discussion or I would repeat it here, but like If we tried to extract the Heeks engine from LiveView and put it, let's say in Phoenix Core, the Heeks engine needed to be LiveView aware because like we built it for LiveView and change tracking. Like it was kind of like a chicken and egg problem. And the closest thing we could get to make it work is having like a compile time configuration that like swapped out part of the engine. So this is the nuance, Uh, I'm gonna like broad stroke it, but like the closest thing we could get if we extracted the Heeks engine from LiveView is uh, it could be made to work, but if you later added LiveView to your project, all of the previously compiled Sigil H's would need to be busted and recompiled because they were using a non-LiveView code path that we were pointing elsewhere. So it's like, it was a chicken-egg problem that could be made to work, but then it would be a fuck on later. And it was like, well, people are already depending on Phoenix Live Dashboard out of the box. So it's like they already have Live View and their devs. That's the thing. People don't see all this nuance behind the scenes. I think it was just a snap decision. And it's like, there were many, many discussions. I'm like, how can we do this? And what we arrived at was, you know, what we think is best. But it wasn't just like, hey, we'll just throw Live View into everything. It was like, that was the best option. But like, okay, hey, like, of course, there is some bias here. I'm like, that's totally fine for me, because that's how I feel people should be building applications. So like obviously, there's some bias, but really, we did look at out of the box trying to to not have live a dependency. But it already is anyway if you're using live dashboard. So it's kind of what happened.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. And and I think it's good for people to get a little bit of insight on on the conversations you guys are having and how it's working behind the scenes. So thanks for that.
0: Before we let you go, I I did want to kind of touch on this other major thing that was happening with Phoenix 1.6, which was the big change to the asset pipeline and the switch to ES build, which I've been really excited about doing myself, especially since I ran into some webpack problems recently. So I was just like, oh, I'm waiting and waiting. And it's like, yay, Phoenix 1.6 here. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that because I know there was some other work that had been done previously to upgrade the webpack process or maybe just kind of what's going on there.
3: Yeah. So Brian Cardarello, the owner of Dockyard, we can kind of credit him with the ES build uh, uh, outcome, even though he did a ton of work that um, a lot of it we did pull in. But a lot of the work that he did around making Webpack 5 work was thrown away. So what happened was Brian came to me and was like, I want to own the Webpack 5 upgrade. And uh, at the same time, he, he also like if anyone's looked at the live view code base, it was one JS file which I've agreed for a while, it's getting too large. But my goal was like, I want to get less tooling, less JS tooling in my life. And I, I didn't want to create a JavaScript framework. So I kept the entire LiveView code base in like a 2000 line file because it was like, it shouldn't be bigger than that. But it was to the point where like even testing things in isolation, like we were having to export things that were private just to test them. So anyway, Brian was like, I'll refactor the Phoenix JS and Phoenix Live JS into multiple files. And at the same time, I'll upgrade to Webpack 5. He thought it would be super fast, like a couple of days of work. I warned him. I was like, this is going to be weeks of work. I promise you. I was like, no matter. Like, it's just, that's just what happens. Uh, I've avoided the Webpack 5 stuff because I knew how much pain it was going to cause. He went in with rosy eyes and it was like a month of a month of work. So while he was doing that and running into problems, um, I was basically just venting privately to the Phoenix team. I'm like, why is it over and over again we have such pain? with the asset story in Phoenix, it's like, it goes against like this whole, our tagline is peace of mind from prototype to production. So it's like the peace of mind thing was like shattered anytime you bring the Webpack build into the process. And I'm trying to speak fairly because I think the the JavaScript ecosystem has done a ton of great work, but I, I do have this intrinsic pain of like revisiting a project. I mean, actually the most recent Docker project that we, were brought in on once we got uh, all the transitive infrastructure pieces, Redis running, Elixir compiling, guess what the blocker was? Surprise, webpack the webpack build on two of our uh, Dockyard engineers machines just completely didn't work. And this is like what we're what we've seen for years in Phoenix on like, I want to be able to revisit a project five years from now that I, I wrote and change like some markup or CSS in my navigation and not have that be three days of work. Yes. And like In my experience, like I said, I'm trying to be fair. In my experience, the Node ecosystem cannot remotely guarantee me that repeatable, reproducible builds in the future. And that's our number one support issue on the Phoenix Tracker is just people having Webpack problems and and Node problems. So while Brian was off doing this thing and hitting these issues, um, the, the straw that broke the camel's back was Brian made a bunch of changes that ended up breaking some people's builds in Webpack. It looked like everything worked. And it worked for some people and not others. And we were trying to figure out, like, why, what the heck is going on? And it turns out NPM from v6 to v7 had a major breaking change on the way that they do file path resolution. So it basically made Brian's work a non-starter because, like, it relied on what we've been doing for the last six years, (laughs) resolving file paths, no longer works on NPM v7. So, like, the churn in the ecosystem... Whether it's Webpack itself from v4 to v5, like they renamed options that broke everyone's watcher configuration in their Debian XS going from four to five, it changed like watch standard in to watch options standard in. There's just like trying to upgrade to Webpack five, Webpack broke things for no reason. Uh, NPM broke things for seemingly no reason. And people could not get SaaS working on whatever version of Node they were running. Um, it was like at Node or NPM or Webpack, things were breaking. And I was like, you know, basically metaphorical table flip, like enough is enough. (laughs) People just want to write some JavaScript and CSS if they're not building a React application or a professional JavaScript developer. Like by all means, Node, Webpack, they're great options. It does tree shaking. It does all this cool stuff. But we don't need that out of the box in Phoenix. You can opt into those things if you need them. We just want to give you a JavaScript and CSS bundle without requiring you to even depend on Node. So that's where ES Build came in. Uh, basically, I was yelling at the clouds in the Phoenix Slack. I did none of this work, by the way. Brian went off and did this work. And then I'm yelling at the clouds in the Phoenix Slack channel. And I'm like, what if we just didn't use Node? It was like kind of what I posited. Like, is that possible? I was like, I'm ready to just to put script tags on the page and be done with this. Um, and then that's like, the Phoenix team was like, what if we didn't use Node? Like, can we can we do bundling without... ES6, uh, all this stuff with and transpiling ES5 if we needed it without depending on Node at all. And it turns out ES Build is written in Go, and it, it gives us that. So ES Build is a Go library that has portable binaries that will do everything that we needed to do as far as JavaScript bundling and transpilation. If you need Babel, that's another story, but it will do the <laughs> it will do what you need it to do as far as all the browsers that we want to support are concerned. And we will do CSS bundling. And it's a portable binary. So, what we do when you run Mix Phoenix server for the first time is we just go download that Go binary and it just compiles your JavaScript and CSS. And it's like, it's a beautiful thing. Like, I'm testing the release, the Mix Phoenix new command. And, like, you know, it used to like run npm install and it would take forever. It would add like 50,000 files and folders. Like, now it's like downloading ES build. And it's like a half second later. So in the time like half second to download ES build, run the Go binary, and produce your JS and CSS bundles like it's that fast. So it's like not like Node doesn't have to be on the machine uh, at all, and it all just works. So that's that's kind of the news there, where it's like out of the box, we really want this peace of mind. Uh, we want to reduce the dependencies that we have. You can still add Webpack. Phoenix has never been. It's been watcher agnostic, it's just we ship with Webpack by default. So it's like people can continue to use Webpack. Uh, Phoenix will still start it up. It's just for those that just want minified JS and together in CSS, it just works out of the box. And it's gonna work five years from now, that portable binary will spin up and it will compile your stuff. So that's the, the long answer to how Build came about. So we still, you know, Brian's work around refactoring the code base still in place was still helpful, but it kind of led us down this two-month pass of just removing Node entirely from the equation.
0: So we don't have to go into this very deep because we're already going pretty long here. But just for people who already have an existing Phoenix application, they've already got the webpack all set up and they're wanting to move to ES Build. Is that a difficult thing? Is there a guide? You know, what is that transition like?
3: It depends on what you're doing in webpack. So I can't speak to, you know, the Webpack loader schemes can get pretty complex. So I I won't be able to speak to what uh, that looks like because it really depends on the dependencies you have. But what I can say anecdotally is Michael Crum on the Phoenix team, they had a 45 second Webpack build in a React application. 45 seconds, which to me is like insane. And once we did this ES build thing, he was like, let me see if I can just replace this with ES build and it's down to six seconds. So he replaced, it's a React application uh, using SAS. So the SAS part of things he had to do, uh, He CargoSense is where he works. They open source a similar to what we're doing. It's a part, It downloads a portable SAS binary and builds your SAS for you. So that's the part that he had to solve on, on his own. But if you're using SAS, I would say that that's now solved as far as if you want to use it with ES build because of the work that Michael Crumb did. But yeah, they went from 45 seconds uh, React application down to to six seconds, which to me is incredible. It worked for them. It's a React app. So I'll say that that informs me that it's viable for much more than this idea of just kind of light JS, CSS. But I don't want to uh, rubber stamp that for people because I'm sure that there are many things that people are depending on for like really advanced builds that probably aren't going to work.
1: Yeah. So the answer here is it depends if you're doing... Different things. You're gonna to have to figure it out. There may or may not be a way to do it, but it might be possible if you're willing to put in some effort to figure it out. Not a golden path for everything, though.
3: Yep. And you know, like I said if Webpack is working great for you, you know, by all means, continue to use it. But for us, it's really about out-of-box experience and also long-term reproducible builds. Like you want to have peace of mind when you start the project up, that like, oh, well, this doesn't work anymore on my architecture because reasons. Um, that's no longer a concern.
0: Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of your perspectives on your move to fly and also going into some of these technical details on Phoenix 1.6 and what people can look forward to as they're coming and looking at the release page and going through the change log and saying, what do I need to do? I'm really excited. And especially as people start to, I'm really looking forward to the ES build thing because recent pains uh, have reignited that fire for me and I'm wanting to just dump it. So I'm excited about that. But if people want to follow the progress of Phoenix or just follow you and what you're doing, you know, you're in the middle of, where should they go to do that?
3: Twitter is probably the best avenue. Like I'm not, I don't push that often. Uh, it's like woodworking slash Phoenix releases slash joining fly. It's like, oh, also having a baby. That's, you know, there, there's a last year of my tweets, but uh, Twitter is the best Spot for like general announcements. I'm on Elixir Slack as well. Uh, if people want to ping me directly, I ask like don't DM me because Elixir Slack is is free. So like by the time I read it, all I see is a notification, but the message is gone. So <laughs> ping the Phoenix, the Phoenix channel. And then as far as the fly work, um you know, there's a Fly.io Twitter handle. Um, we're going to continue to publish a lot of content around Elixir and Phoenix. You know, Mark, Mark has been already putting content out already, which is great. But yeah, I think, you know, following along on fly, kind of see what we're working on and focusing on. Because right? I think for me, I think it's going to make sense for any application, especially if you're using LiveView to deploy on fly. Because I, I think, you know, this idea of global distribution, running close to users, like it, it's going to just make sense to put the LiveView process as close as possible to the end user for the same reason it makes sense to put your CDN assets there. So I think that's kind of you'll see more and more content around using Fly for Elixir and Phoenix, solving kind of these ideas around how to do RPC over to some primary node, how to do re-replicas. I think you'll see more and more content around this idea because it's just going to make sense if you're using Elixir or Phoenix to use a platform that can run things connected together and do it as close as possible to users. So I'm kind of excited to see the content that we put on, continue to put on around that.
0: Well, thanks again, Chris. I'm looking forward to seeing things as they continue to progress. And especially as things are moving forward with Phoenix in this new kind of distributed way. And, you know, because you know, I'm excited about that. Like that's, that's what's captured my attention and focus too. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.